follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you for all your support. National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. On this show, as you know, we often discuss the tools of national power. Those tools are diplomacy, the power of information, military power, and economic power. In the national security arena, you often hear those four tools abbreviated to the acronym of DIME. It's easy to discuss military power. All of us inherently understand how military or hard power is used to deter or defeat nations seen as aggressors or if we're in conflict with them directly. Less discussion revolves around diplomatic or economic power and how this form of power, usually referred to as soft power, can be a game changer for American national security interests. In fact, an argument can be easily made that America has, over the past 20 years, really since 9-11, somewhat abandoned or at least significantly downplayed the use of soft power to achieve desired national security objectives in our foreign policy. With us today to discuss how American soft power might be reinvigorated to dramatically improve America's standing around the world, to boost economic development to benefit America in global markets, and to infuse new life into the rule of law and good governance around the world is Mr. Daniel Rundy. Dan Rundy is Senior Vice President and the William A. Schreier Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Renowned as a global thought leader, he has been at the center of Washington, D.C. debates on soft power and development for two decades. Previously, he held senior leadership roles at the World Bank Group and served in the Bush administration at USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Bretton Woods Committee, and previously chaired two U.S. federal advisory committees that touch on soft power. He's a regular contributor to TheHill.com and hosts a CSIS podcast series, Building the Future, Freedom and Prosperity and Foreign Policy. Dan Rundy is the author of The American Imperative, which was released in early February of this year. Dan Rundy, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on your show, National Security This Week. So we're on Zoom, you and me, so we can see each other. Where are you sitting this morning? I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. I'm, uh, I'm not at my, uh, at my office, but I'm not at home either. I'm, at a, I'm in a, a club, a private club here in Washington, D.C. in one of the conference rooms. So it's, pretty, it's, pretty, it's a good setup uh, for this discussion. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, I'm glad to, glad you were able to, to work me into your schedule. You have a lot on your plate there at, uh, at CSI. So before we get into the book and all the insights contained therein, I'd like to ask you quickly to tell us about uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. What, what is CSIS, and, and what does your role as chair of global analysis entail? So we're not CSI Miami. Some people, <laughs> I think, think they're like, what's the CSIS thing? In Canada, the CIA is called CSIS. So people are like, what are you like? Are you like the Canadian Intelligence Service? No, we're not the Canadian Intelligence Service. And no, we're not CSI Miami. 
The Center for Strategic International Studies is a very well-known and very prominent foreign policy and national security think tank in Washington. We've been around since 1961. We're bipartisan and we have, um, you know, I think developed a, a strong reputation of being able to convene the private sector, both sides of the aisle in Congress, Republican and Democratic administrations. We have great ties to experts in the de defense world, the intelligence community, the diplomatic corps, you know, folks who work on international development issues, as well as sort of company, you know, American multinationals and global multinationals. So we we're often able to convene across the political spectrum. I came to CSIS because I wanted people to read my stuff and come to my cocktail parties. So slightly <laughs> flippant, but they say, like, I wanted the convening power of an organization that would be sort of a force multiplier for my ideas. I, I served in the Bush administration, so I'm a Republican, but a lot of, you know, I learn a lot listening to people who don't necessarily think exactly like how I think and who are coming from a different perspective. And so I've been able to do that at CSIS. And also I've been able to convene across the political spectrum to try and get things done that I think are good for the America and American national security and American interests. Uh, yeah, CSIS is is definitely known in Washington, D.C. as one of the top think tanks uh, in, in the D.C. area. Uh, very, very balanced, uh, very thoughtful, very fact-based, data-driven, uh, much like uh, a Brookings. So you have, you're at a, an institution that has a fantastic reputation in the national security arena. Uh, so, Dan, I finished your book, The American Imperative, uh, a few weeks ago. It was a great read. Uh, Honestly, you, you filled that book with excellent analysis and the case studies you cite of how soft power has been used successfully around the world, how it enriches people's lives, supports the rule of law and good governance, and many other positive policy outcomes. Uh, I'd like to approach today's show because I really want to focus on this book and the topic of soft power. I want to approach the show in a very specific way today, sort of a, an iterative approach. So we'll build on things as we go through our discussion. And let me begin by asking this question. What was the catalyst for you to decide to write this book, and why did you structure it the way you did? And I'll tell our, our listeners, uh, I, I know you start the beginning with what's called the assessment, and then you follow it up with the toolkit as a way to analyze and then address the challenges and opportunities before us. Thanks. I, I've been in Washington for 20 years. I, as I said earlier, I was in the Bush administration working at USAID, which for the, your listeners may or may not be familiar, is the foreign aid arm of the U.S. government. I was there for five years. I then spent four years working for the World Bank Group. So the World Bank, which many of your listeners may have heard of, has several components to it. There's sort of four or five components and it's kind of the World Bank family. So I, I kind of learned about how multilateral institutions work. Uh, as So having worked at, at AI USAID and then having worked at the World Bank Group, I had you know a significant perspective on those two organizations. Previously in my life, I had worked at on Wall Street right out of college for a couple of years. And I worked for a couple of years in Argentina working for Citibank doing commercial banking in an emerging market. So I'd worked at a commercial bank, I'd worked on Wall Street, I'd worked at a bilateral aid agency, and then I'd worked at the World Bank Group at a place called the International Finance Corporation. And then I'd spent the last 10 plus years at CSIS and I thought, okay, I've been at a think tank for 10 years. I'd be silly not to write a book that kind of captures sort of 20 years of sort of my at least 20 years of my career and sort of the changing world as I see it I, and, I, I, and what I think we ought to do about it. And so I wrote this book because I think we're in a new age. 
John, we're in a new age of great power competition. I'm happy to kind of talk about what I mean by that, but I think it's not the post-Cold War world anymore, and it's not a second necessarily a Cold War, though I think this area, age of great power competition is going to have a lot of things that rhyme, unfortunately, with a Cold War. And there's going to be some logic that kind of reflects a logic similar to the logic, unfortunately, of the Cold War. But if we're in this new age of great power competition with the Chinese Communist Party and with Vladimir Putin's murderous regime, and so... And I, let me just pause for, I want your listeners, when you, they, I'm going to may use the term China and I may use the term Russia in this conversation. When I say China, I mean the Chinese Communist Party. And when I say Russia, I mean Vladimir Putin and his circle of murderers and, and thugs that are running the Russian government. I, not It's not a crack on the Chinese people and it's not a crack on the Russian people. We need to have ways to engage the Chinese people and we have, need to have ways to engage the Russian people. We have a problem with their governments and their foreign policies and sometimes they're how they treat their own people but what i would say is is that we're in a competition with the chinese communist party and vladimir putin's murderous regime and that this great power competition is not going to play out in china this great power competition is not going to play out in russia it's going to play out in what might be described as the global south basically developing countries it's going to play out in africa it's going to play out in Latin America. It's going to play out in South Asia. It's going to play out in Southeast Asia. It's going to play out in the Pacific Island states. It's going to play out in Central Asia. It's going to play out in Ukraine and Moldova. Most of this competition is not going to be a military competition. This is going to be a competition that is about vaccines. It's going to be about infrastructure. It's going to be about what technology and what tech standards are used. It's going to be about who runs and leads the what's called the multilateral system, these kind of the UN and various 200 or so specialized multilateral agencies. It's going to be about trade. It's going to be about values. It's going to be about training and education and influence and engagement, people to people engagement. And it's going to be about um, so it's going to be about a whole bunch of things. In addition to a military competition, it's going to be mainly a non-military competition. If you buy that and I buy that, then I think we're going to need a strategy that reflects this reality. And we're going to have to think differently about how we use our non-military forms of our power. So I wrote this book because I want to start a national conversation about this. And I'm a Republican, so I think a lot of Republicans kind of gravitate towards defense and national security stuff. And I do too. I'm for a 500 ship Navy. I'm for peace through strength, but it's not going to be enough. And if you listen to people like former secretary, Bob Gates, who served in the, he was the head of the CIA in Bush 41, and he was in Bush 43 as secretary of defense. And he carried over into the Obama administration. He says the same thing. We're going to need various forms of our power beyond um, just having military power. So my argument is I'm ultimately optimistic that we're going to be, we're going to be able to kind of prevail because I think I'd rather be us than them for a whole bunch of different reasons. But I think ultimately that we have to have a strategy that reflects this reality that most of this is going to play out in developing countries and most of this is going to be a non-military form of competition. Therefore, we have to have a strategy to think about how we use our non-military forms of our power to approach this challenge. So I, I, I generally stay away from politics on this show. Uh, we, we, we very much focus on policy and specifically policy that uh, either directly or indirectly uh, impacts American national security interests. 
you clearly don't hide the fact that you've you've uh, served in Republican administrations in your bio on the inside cover of the book. Uh, yeah. The American Imperative even states that you served as an advisor on a number of Republican presidential com- campaigns. Uh, that said, I will I will say to our listeners, you take administrations from both sides of the aisle to task for bad choices and bad decisions in international relations, especially about policies impacting uh, development funding. Uh, you also give credit to administrations on both sides of the aisle for good things they've done to foster education, economic development, the rule of law, good governance, etc., around the world as part of American foreign policy. It was truly refreshing to read those things in your book. How have you been able to maintain such objectivity in a time of serious political polarization here inside in, in America, including at a time, frankly, when uh, American political leaders are polarized about how to respond to foreign affairs challenges and opportunities? I try. Look, I'm I, I don't purport to have all the answers, but what I would say is that I try and listen a lot. I learn a lot from listening to other people who know a lot more than I do on specific topics. They oftentimes don't think exactly the way I think. And so I would say uh, part of it is it's been a privilege to be at a place like, you know, I think, you know, at times I would say that I um, might be more personally comfortable at a place that's more conservative. But what I would say is that I learn a lot from people who don't think like me. I'm able to convene across the political spectrum. And so as a result, I think the institution that I'm with uh, has given me the opportunity to do that. And I would just say that, um, it's, uh, you know, I think as a result, I, I learn a lot from people who, like, I think people on the right don't have a monopoly on the best ideas and people on the left don't have a monopoly on the best ideas. And so I spend a lot of time listening to people from all sides of the aisle. And I would say, I think that, um, you know, I think that we, um, so for example, I think the Biden administration did a great job early on in the administration of saying, we're going to support a candidate to lead the, the what's basically the Major League Baseball Commission of the Internet. It's called the ITU. And it was something that was needed and they needed to do it early and they did it. And so I think there's been a, a, a realization at the end of the Trump administration and now in the Biden administration that we have to be far more aggressive, far more proactive and far more strategic about how we think about international organization leadership races. This may sound like a little bit obscure to your listeners, but there's 200 multilateral organizations there. You think of the United Nations, the United Nations isn't just that building in New York. It's sort of, there's sort of a several dozen specialized agencies of about 15 big ones and they do important things. There's one called the World Intellectual Property Organization, for example. And I talk about it in the book, John, where you know, if John Olson and I come up with a new ballpoint pen idea, so 25 years ago, we'd have sent a blueprint in the mail and somebody would have opened up an envelope and then they'd have taken the piece of paper and gone to a gigantic filing cabinet to go see if John and Dan's ballpoint pen was unique and different than someone else's ballpoint pen blueprint design in some filing cabinet. If you fast forward today, it's sent over the email and it's some kind of a PDF or CAD drawing or whatever the heck it is. And then there's some big cloud computing file at the patent and trade office. But what happens is with these ideas, whether it's a ballpoint pen or some other intellectual property, that intellectual property, that design is then sent to uh, Switzerland and where there's like the major league baseball commission of intellectual property sits. 
and they have a really giant cloud computing file of all the ballpoint pen blueprints to make sure that Dan and John's ballpoint pen blueprint is different than anybody else's and, and has unique intellectual property. They're kind of a certifier that it's special and different, if you will. Well, there was an election a couple of years ago. Somebody came to me in the Trump administration and said, we need your help because we just lost terribly an election for another international organization called the FAO, which I'm happy to talk about. And the United States had its teeth kicked in in the election by the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party candidate got 120 votes in the FAO election and the American candidate got 12. We had our teeth kicked in. I could use other terms, but since I think this is an FCC regulated radio show, John, <laughs> I'll go with teeth kicked in, right? But I think your listeners know what I'm trying to say. And so I think it was a sobering experience and a wake up call. And they said, we didn't like, we didn't like how that felt. And so going back to my ballpoint pen example, can you imagine if someone who's a member of the Chinese Communist Party, who's the resume, speaks perfect English, speaks perfect French, has a degree from a what you know a Harvard University or an Oxford and has a law degree and is has kind of risen up the ranks and is now ready to assume leadership of the taking control of that giant cloud computing file and also being able to make key hiring decisions and make decisions like well maybe we ought to hire Huawei the Chinese tech firm to plug all the patent and trade offices together in addition to hiring the people's liberation army.com cloud computing company firm in Beijing, and they'll do a great job. Don't trust us. I'm not going to rifle through the files at two in the morning kind of a thing. Like, I mean, come on. Right. So it's like the, the, the Fox guard in the hen house. So it, it took, it takes five minutes to explain what the heck is this WIPO thing? What the heck are the stakes in simple English to earth to smart earth people like your listeners, but you know, once you understand what the heck this, I mean, if you'd asked me, John, five years ago, and I'm I'm at like, you know, I sit at a think tank and think deep thoughts all day. And like, I had no idea what the heck WIPO was five years ago. So if, you know, maybe some of your listeners probably know what it is because they're patent attorneys or they're kind of in like a special niche area where they know what it is. But I bet most of your listeners don't know what it is either. And I would just say that there are a whole series of a couple, there's like, probably 30 or 40 really important, obscure, but really important multilateral institutions. And we don't want China running those things. If they want to run the International Tiddlywinks Association, the International <laughs> Chess Organization, that's fine. But I don't want them running the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. I don't want them running the World Bank. I don't want them running the UN, you know, being UN Secretary General. And I don't want them running WIPO. So... I think this having lost this election for the FAO, uh, which I'm happy to talk about what it is, they were like, boy, this is pretty embarrassing. I don't want to have that happen again. And so that's why. And so I give credit to the Trump administration for kind of running a very successful campaign to stop. The, and we helped them do that. And I talk about it in my book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. John, I talk about it. There's a chapter about multilateral leadership because it's really important. It's obscure. And the average American doesn't necessarily think about it. I was in the Boy Scouts, John. And the, if you want to become an Eagle Scout, yeah, there's three merit badges for citizenship. There's citizenship in the community. There's citizenship in the nation. And guess what? There's a third one called citizenship in the world. And so, or at least there was three. I know that I believe there's a fourth now, but, but basically you get the idea that like there's citizenship in the world is about like, you know, we got to operate in the world and these things do matter. They impact Americans at home. They impact our security and our prosperity. And so, 
we have to pay a little bit of attention to them or our leadership does, our leaders do. Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that American voters have to spend a lot of time thinking about like whether the UN or these UN these UN elections for the average American, but it does mean that we need we as people who are entrusted with leadership roles need to kind of mind the store a little bit though. We need to do a better job of minding the store and making sure we're riding herd on these things. We built these institutions, we pay the condo fees largely on these institutions and they ought to be somewhat responsive as a result of that. And we had to make sure that they don't, you know, start kind of being responsive to somebody else's interest, meaning the Chinese Communist Party's interests over. Yeah, speaking of uh, of China, let, let, Dan, let's go ahead and get into the book, The American Imperative. Uh, your opening chapter covers the rise of uh, of China. Uh, you return to China again in Chapter 4 and spend a good bit of time talking about uh, how China has been impacting uh, things around the world. Being that China is America's biggest strategic competitor uh, and is likely to remain our biggest challenge uh, for many decades to come, uh, how do you see the U.S.-China relationship and the competition between U.S. and China to court the non-aligned world? And I can give you about five minutes to cover this one. Okay, so I think China, I'm not a China scholar, and I say that in the book, and I know, so there are people who do this for a living, they'll be like, why are you talking about China? <laughs> well, I'm talking about China because they are our biggest competitor, and a lot of our competition with them uh, is things like they've stood up something called the Asia Infrastructure, they're the second largest economy in the world. What they've done in terms of their progress since the, since the late 70s is just breathtaking and impressive. And you just have to, they're the second, they're, they're one of the, the largest number of foreign students in the United States are from China. They're the, they're the, they, there are 120 countries where China is the number one trading partner. 20 years ago, the United States was the largest trading partner for most of the world. Today, China is the largest trading partner for most of the world. They uh, have the money and the ability to start new institutions. They basically didn't like how they were being treated at the IMF about 10 years ago. And they said, you know what, I'm going to take my bat and ball and go home. I'm going to create something called the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And every member of the U.S. Senate has heard of the AIIB. They can, probably can't tell you if they lend money to car, make car loans or not, but they can tell you they don't like it. They all, I think every member of the U.S. Senate and every member in the House of Representatives heard of something called the Belt and Road Initiative. And many of your, your listeners have heard about it. Well, they kind of know what it is. They can't exactly describe it, but they know it's not belt and suspenders and they know it's a problem. And they're vaguely think that there's probably something that's probably a vague threat to us and they're right. So they have the ability there. We talk in the military world about near peer competitor, like about like the quality of their submarines or the quality of their radar, or the quality of their ships or the quality of their jets. Guess what? China is a near-peer soft power competitor. So in certain things, they can compete with us. They compete with us in the multilateral system. They can outcompete us in certain things that we're having to do with certain kinds of infrastructure that we've either held ourselves back on or, or whatever. Um, they're willing to build big hydro dams. Uh, we're, we get real kind of funny about build, building big hydro dams. We don't do that anymore. They're happy to finance oil and gas projects. You know, we, we've decided that oil and gas, like I believe that most poor countries are going to develop their oil and gas resources. And we've, we've decided, well, we're not going to, we, the U.S. government's not going to finance that. And the multilateral institutions we lead aren't going to finance that. Well, I think that's a mistake because I think if I'm a developing country, I'm going to develop those resources. I'm going to have China do it for me. I'm going to have the Russians do that for me. Um, they are owning a lot of metals, mining, mineral, mineral rights, 
and they're processing a lot of metals. If you want to have a carbon transition, and I know this is important for the Biden administration, and maybe some of your listeners are concerned about climate change, you want to have climate change, you better love mining and metals processing to the tips of your toes. And guess what? China controls 40% of the world's metals processing. So I have a hard time believing we're going to transfer our dependence on Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Venezuela for the People's Republic of China on, on sort of our energy dependency. I have a very, very hard time believing that. So if that's the case, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to mine as much as 40 times the amount of copper that we're currently mining. We're going to have to process a whole bunch of this stuff. So I don't know how we're going to do it, but like we're just kind of in the first inning of thinking all that through. But China's way ahead of us on that stuff. So they also, so they also, the Belt and Road is attractive because it's a really big, ambitious project that speaks to the hopes and aspirations of developing countries. So what I say to presidential candidates and policymakers is if we don't speak to the hopes and aspirations of poor people in developing countries, they're going to take their business to China because they've got an alternative today. They didn't have that alternative 15 years ago, but they do now. So we can pick, we can leave a void and let China fill the space. Now I have, John, I have yet had anybody in Washington tell me I am totally cool with the idea of having China run the world. That would be awesome. I've yet to have a single person tell me, and I'd be really curious if any of your listeners like call in or send you an email, said, no, no, that'd be cool. It would be awesome to have the Chinese lead the world. That would be awesome. And I'd ask your listeners to do a thought exercise. What do you most care about? Do you care about religious freedom? I care a lot about religious freedom. I'm Catholic. I care about that. Do you care about freedom of speech? Do you care about freedom of assembly? Do you care about the ability to kind of move and make decisions? Do you care about things like rule of law or you care about human rights? Maybe you care about environmental stewardship, like including the issues like such as climate change or envir you know, environmental issues. Does anyone on this call, anyone on your listeners really believe that the Chinese Communist Party would leading the world would be a better steward of those things that you hold most dear? I believe the answer is no. I bet there's not a single listener on this call be like, oh yeah, that would be great. They do such a better job than the United States in the West. I don't believe that. So I have maybe there are people in the global South that think that and may just to say that just to kind of irk me, will say this to be provocative, to say like, well, I want to, let me, let me provoke you, Dan, when I say that. But like, truthfully, if people are really honest, the answer is no. So my point, John, is, when I've talked to people in the Trump administration who may have been kind of like not super, you know, when they came into the, the Trump administration said we should get rid of something called the export import bank. We're going to get rid of something called the overseas private investment corporation. They went around and said, oh my gosh, I've read the intelligence stuff. Now that I'm in the job, maybe we actually need to keep the export import bank. And they put it on steroids. And they said, oh my gosh, the overseas private investment corporation actually you know, and so when the when question was with them, are you prepared to cede this space to China? The answer was no. And so as a result, they said, oh, my gosh, maybe same with like all oh, this multilateral stuff. Like I'm a Republican. I think a lot of Republicans think like the multilateral system is sort of like a place where like people in the U.N. don't pay their parking tickets. <laughs> They're mean to Israel. They're going to grab my guns. You know, I got to get a permission slip from, you know, some a developing country to like defend the United States of America's, you know, national security concerns or something. So there's like lots of critiques or it's kind of vaguely anti-American or vaguely kind of incompetent or vaguely kind of like not on the level, right? Those are sort of the critiques I think a lot of Republicans have of it. And I think Republicans kind of love to hate on the, the United Nations and all this stuff. So I think, but when we had our teeth kicked in, 
at the FAO election, like you didn't hear the Trump administration say these these are basically useless organizations anymore. Like, whoa, this isn't 1995 anymore where we can say like, hey, I'm going to stop paying my dues or I'm going to pull out. Well, I was worried when the Trump administration said I'm going to pull out of the WHO. What I was afraid of, and I think your listeners should think about this, is the Chinese have enough money to say, like, well, we'll pay the Americans dues and make us look like a bunch of chumps and a bunch of losers and a bunch of stupid people. So I think you need to think about like, we can't just kind of pull it. This isn't 1995 anymore in, in the military realm, in the soft power realm, in the multilateral. So if we say like, well, I'm quitting and I'm not gonna pay my dues anymore. You better think long and hard about what the consequences of that. Are we prepared to have China like pay our dues for us or the Russians pay our dues for us? Yeah, we're gonna, you know, I don't think most Americans would say like, oh, that's that's a good outcome. That I'd say like, oh, I don't think I want that. So I think- as people who are per, perhaps maybe not kind of, I think there's a lot of exhaustion in America. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I think there are a lot of people who were tired of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, on the mainly on the right, but some on the left. And so I think, I don't think most Americans were like, I'm ready to hand over leadership to China. What I think the feeling was more like, I would like a timeout on global leadership, please. I'd like a vacation for global leadership. We can't have a vacation for global leadership. And so the, the choice is either we lead or China leads. So I've had people say, like, well, we're in a multilateral world. Well, a multilateral world is horrible. And I'll tell you that China is not up for a multilateral world. China wants to supplant us and set up its own rule system. And anybody on this call who's in the United States is going to say, like, if they think about it for half a second, they're like, actually, I don't want that. And I think, I think most political leaders are going to say, I don't want that. So I think... We need to kind of like, I wrote the book because I want to spark a national conversation about, okay, are we going to lead in the world that we're in this new age? And like most of our leadership is going to be exercised through these non-military forms of our power. And we need to get our act together. We can do this. And so I've committed to do a hundred book talks and I'm on, you're my 51st, 51st John. So I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. Uh, so, Dan, we got to take about a 45-second break to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. Great. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. We are back here on National Security This Week with our guest, Dan Rundy, who's a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic International Studies and the author of The American Imperative. Uh, Dan, before we go to our next uh, break at uh, 945, uh, I want to cover three questions, and I want to give you four minutes to cover each of these questions. Uh, the first one is uh, chapters two and three in The American Imperative I, I, I were really fascinating. Your analysis of the world we live in today being so very different from the world of just 20 years ago is really, really eye-opening. Uh, the, how do you see the global South, as, as you mentioned earlier? It's, that's what we call the developing world. 
in the realm of economic development, governance, instituting the rule of law, observing human rights, those kinds of things, are the changes happening faster today due to modern technology? Are those changes happening due to engagement by the U.S. and our allies and friends uh, with those rapidly changing nations? Or are there other catalysts we need to better consider? And I, I, I point to an article that just came out uh, a little while ago about the United States as working to keep China out of Palau, the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia. You'd say, well, why, why do those small island nations in the South Pacific matter? Well, it all matters, uh, going back to your, uh, your points from the, just before we took the break. Uh, it, we cannot cede leadership to China. So what, what do you think about these, uh, the, devel- the global south? So the global south is, you know, a term is sort of a, a a term that's sort of a it's an imperfect way of capturing sort of what I would call like developing countries. I think third, 40 years ago, we called them third world countries. And I think that's like too touchy a term. And I think developing countries, some people are like, well, there's some that are upper middle income developing countries and some that are lower middle income countries. And then there's a series of countries of these sort of hundred or so countries that, that I think is sort of the universe of countries we're talking about. There's 54 African countries, for example, right? And there's 33 countries in the Western Hemisphere, but let's just say it's 100 to 120 countries. Well, you know, then there's also a category within these 100 or so countries that are like fragile states, but no one wants to be called, hey, I'm, I'm a fragile state. No one's like to be told I'm a fragile state, right? So, so there's some funniness about that. But my point is that So Global South has been sort of a compromised term that's used to kind of capture where people kind of get what you're trying to say without being offensive, I guess is how I would describe it. I would say a lot of them are, um, they're developing and some of them are more democratic than others. Some have more conflict or more conflict affected. A lot of them have big, I, I would bet most of them, their number one trading partners, China, or their number two or number three partners, China. So you have to think about that. And a lot of them owe a lot of money to China now, which is different than even, you know, 10 years ago. So as a result, and a lot of them probably have Huawei providing and ZTE providing kind of their telecom backbone. And, you know, a lot of them, um, if they're saying, hey, I'd like to build roads or dams or develop my oil and gas assets, that a lot of them probably have China involved with that too. So it's all different than 20 years ago. Um, some of them, China had a relationship with a number of African and developing countries 20, 30, 40 years ago, but the level of engagement is much more intense. And yes, I think the cell phone revolution has accelerated things. I think urbanization, much of the world now lives in cities. I also think the world's richer, freer, healthier, and with more agency. Like most, this isn't your grandparents or even your parents' developing world. It's a lot, there's been a lot of development progress in many of the developing countries. So it's not, you know, these countries have a lot of sophistication. There's a very sophisticated top level of, uh, of policymakers in many of the countries educated in the West. You know, millions of people have, you know, a couple, you know, tens of millions of people have studied and gotten university degrees, whether in their own countries or abroad, and have gone back and have changed their societies. So this is a very different conversation than 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, on this show, we've had a few previous guests who've talked about America's heavy reliance on on hard power, the hard power, the military side since 9-11. Uh, too much reliance on any one tool of national power is, is generally not an ideal way to go. But when you choose to rely on military power for the majority of global engagement, that, that's not only the most expensive, but it's also the least beneficial for the long term. Uh, Part of the purpose of your book, I think, is to spell out these ideas, these policies specifically that the United States should adopt 
to reclaim global leadership using soft power. So what do you mean specifically by soft power, and why is it so vital for the U.S. to rediscover our traditional foreign policy practice of using strategic patience to achieve our long-term national security objectives? So I'm going to say soft power, sir. I know it when I see it isn't necessarily like the right answer, but I'd say, John, is that soft power, what I've described it for this, for the book, and I sort of eschew a, a very precise definition in the book, and I'm sure you picked up on that, is like non-military forms of our power. Now, I conclude, and it probably doesn't necessarily include in the intelligence community either, though there are some functions in the intelligence world that probably play into soft power as well. But I'm thinking about our diplomatic influence, our international development, trade, public diplomacy, people-to-people engagement, our leadership in the multilateral system, a lot, some things like commercial diplomacy, which is an important thing that we need to understand. So I think there's a series of functions that are beyond, look, I am all for the military. I support the troops, and I think we need to have a very strong U.S. military. We need to have a very strong intelligence function, but they're not enough. And what I say earlier in this conversation is, look, if most of this is playing out in the developing world or what have or let's call it the global south, because that seems to be an easier term for people to kind of handle or kind of accept, most of it is not going to be about high Mars and attackums and and boomer submarines like i you know like i don't know a lot about that stuff john you know a lot more about that stuff than i do like i didn't know what an attackum was until six weeks ago right and i didn't know what a HIMAR was you but you knew what it was but i know it's important but i it's not my area of expertise but i can tell you that if china is your number one trading partner and you want to confront them on debt it's really hard if china's got control of your telecom system you probably don't have a lot of secrets from them if, um, you know, if you are, um, you know, if you want to have a port or an airport and the only game in town is to work through China, you're going to do it. So you can't fight something with nothing. And so my answer, my book, the book, The American Imperative is about like, we got to have a something to fight their something. That's my point. So when you get into the, the toolkit uh, part of your book, the second half, uh, you start by explaining what makes a nation weak and susceptible to failure, frankly, government failure. Uh, you cite some key things that often lead to fragility inside of a nation, and those things include poor governance, limited institutional capability, low social cohesion, diminished societal resistance, low levels of human and economic development, violence inside the society, and a lack of respect for the rule of law. Can you just briefly talk about why you chose those key factors as being so critical for the international development role? Yeah. So I've been in international development and around it for more than 20 years. And I would say like there's two important things to have a success, to have human progress. You need to have a functioning state that kind of sort of works. That's not too, doesn't steal too much, <laughs> isn't too, doesn't steal too much, isn't too incompetent and guarantees some minimal things in terms of basic minimal security and delivers some basic minimum public goods in terms of education, infrastructure, health and power make more and rule of law function of rule of law and that's easy for me to say in kind of my virtual ivory tower on this phone call but those are really hard to do then the second thing you need is you need to have economic growth 
ideally what's called formal economic growth. Like, so if John, you and I open up a kiosk and we don't pay taxes in some slum, that's not, that's, that is economic activity. That's private economic activity. But what I want is for John and Dan to open up a, a chain of, of 20 kiosks that are kind of have, you know, the John and Dan store or something, right? The, 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 you know, and so that we pay taxes, we formally hire people that we respect environmental and labor laws and we can borrow large amounts of money from the financial system in a country or outside of the country. That's called the formal formal economy. And when you have a large percentage of your economy is in the informal economy, it means there's something wrong. It's a bad thing. And if you've got a country that where the state is stealing a lot or people who are potential taxpayers don't wanna pay taxes and they're basically on strike, because they think, well, if I pay taxes, the, the politicians are gonna quote unquote steal it, then you have a problem. You have a political economy problem. So I talk about governance and I talk, my fingers on the scale of, I'm, I'm in favor of more democracy, not less democracy. I'm in favor of more civil society. I'm in favor of human rights as you know, talked about in the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the 1940s. I think today, I think this year is like the 80th anniversary, I think, or something like, it's one of the anniversaries, milestone anniversaries of the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You might have somebody on to talk about that, John. It's a, you know, that might be of interest to your listeners. But so I'm in favor of all of that um, because I think uh, a democratic governance, even though with all of its warts, and I think I'm sure your listeners could list a whole bunch of problems we have in this country, um, is better than some kind of horrible authoritarian regime. I know sometimes some people will say, like, if we could just have some wonderful benign dictatorship with a lot of technocratic <laughs> competence and there are a couple people will point to like well singapore isn't that awesome or some other places but i don't know i don't know that you know i just think uh over time those those systems give way to where people you know there's enough development and the people are wealthy enough you have enough of a middle class where they want to have a voice yeah and so you start having demands for something that looks like a democracy so i think we should be pushing towards democratic i also think democracy allows for accountability you know there's a con you know the un talks about accountable governance that's kind of un code talk for democratic governance so they'll use that term and then economic growth is another thing i also have a chapter where i discuss at length in part of the book about fragile states i just think a lot of these 100 or 120 countries a lot of them are impacted by conflict and we're going to be we're going to, whether we like it or not, whether we like dealing with conflict affected states or not, they're interested in us. Let me put it that way. And so we're going to, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to deal with complicated places for, for, for the rest of our, your listeners' lives. They're going to be kind of on the radar and be part of the, the foreign policy national security conversation. And we just have to have better ways of kind of managing and mitigating. We can't necessarily solve people's conflicts. But we can we can play a constructive role. We you know we can do so in ways we can do a lot so in a lot of different ways, not necessarily military intervention. Yeah, as long as the United States uh, people of the United States choose to be the global leaders, we will have to uh, bear those burdens. Uh, for our yeah, audience, I view it's like you pay a condo. It's the condo fee. It's part of the condo fees of global leadership. Yeah, for our audience, you're listening to National Security this week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is Dan Rendy, who recently published The American Imperative about reclaiming global leadership through soft power. 
We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Dan, we have about uh, 13 minutes left in the show this morning. Uh, good governance appears uh, as, a, as a theme throughout your book. I'd like to read a short paragraph from your book and ask you to address that paragraph uh, with maybe a couple of examples from around the world so our listeners can better understand your thinking. Uh, the paragraph is, uh, when, af- when government officials abuse public power for private gain, they do more than simply appropriate illicit wealth. Corruption robs citizens of equal access to vital services, denying the right to quality health care, public safety, and education. It degrades the business environment, subverts economic opportunity, and exacerbates inequality. It often contributes to human rights violations and abuses and can drive migration. As a fundamental threat to the rule of law, corruption hollows out institutions, corrodes public trust, and fuels popular cynicism toward effective, accountable governance. Corruption's a really bad thing. That's that's the main message of that. And I'd say it's a vote-moving issue. Um, and so what I would say is that I think we miss, I think, look, we have low levels of corruption in this country. I'm, 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 I don't want to name every notorious city in the country that has maybe problems with corruption. Um, I'm sure there are people on this, on this call who will say, or on this radio, who listen to this radio show and say, well, okay, they can think about other forms of corruption. I was thinking about the film, The Godfather last night, and unfortunately, that film is about sort of systemic corruption in the United States, right? And how how sort of you know, and so I think, um, so we're an in, we're an imperfect country, and we have problems with corruption in the United States. The good thing is we have a we have some level of independent media. So shows like this radio show and your this radio station play an important public function in addition to being a, a company. An important public function of providing uh, clarity and transparency on local or international or national issues that need to be covered, and it's a form of transparency. And so uh, I also think that having democratic elections allows for people, at least in, you know, if you have a one-party government in in a city or in a state, it's probably bad, whether it's Republican or Democrat because it means it limits the ability of people to have it hold people accountable. So I think that's something to, you know, to lament as we have people that kind of have more red states or more blue states, it makes it more difficult, I think, at times to have kind of full-on accountability for some of this stuff. The other thing I'd say is like there's been a lot of thinking and evolving of thinking about the issue of corruption as a problem that holds back societies beyond the United States. Major global progress on corruption issues has always been led by, has required American leadership. There's something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was in the 1970s. And then we've pushed on a number of different fronts and we've convened a coalition of the willing to move on these fronts. So again, we're an imperfect and flawed vessel, but like in the Bible, uh, I've been listening to Bible in a Year by Father Mike Schmitz, who's from Minnesota. And he, you know, what you hear in the Old Testament is that God calls flawed, imperfect people to take on big jobs in the Old Testament. Well, uh, the United States is a flawed, imperfect society that's been called upon to take on big, important roles in the world. And we continue to have to do so. And I think in the issue of corruption, that has been the case. And so if we want to see progress on global corruption and we should continue to push on, it's going to require American leadership. Let me also just say one other thing. In this age of great power competition where China is really good at bribing people and the Russians like doing it too, 
this thing about corruption 10 or 15 years ago is, well, corruption is like a bad, global bad, or it's like an anti-development. Well, that's true. But guess what? In an age of great power competition, like we want to make it harder for China to bribe people. I want to make it harder for Russia to bribe people. Do you see what I mean? And therefore, there's not just like, isn't this a nice thing to do? Or isn't this <laughs> it's robbing poor people? Yeah, that's all true. But guess what? I want to, I want to make sure that the Chinese Communist Party has a much harder time going around bribing as a modus operandi as it goes around the world winning contracts and stuff. Because that's like kind of part of their packages. A lot of the time, there's an allegation that they seem to like to bribe people. So I want to make it darn harder for them to do that. I think I just heard an announcement uh, that uh, even in the midst of war, fighting a war in Ukraine, the Ukrainian government actually just cracked down significantly on corruption. I think it was in their judicial system. Uh, so even in the midst of that uh, that challenge that they have, they are trying to comply with uh, what uh, Western democratic powers seek as uh, the optimal outcome, and that is a, an end to corruption within the governance. Uh, so, Dan, we've discussed a lot of different aspects of soft power this morning. I'd like you to ask us to tell the story of Patrick Awua, who is from Ghana. I, th- I think that story is not only enlightening, but it, for me, is is very heartwarming, and, and it gave me a hope for a better future across the entire developing world. Yeah, thanks. So I, I I've served on the board for a number of years of something called the Ashesi Universe. Patrick Awua is an inspiring figure. Patrick is from Ghana. He uh, went to Swarthmore, which is one of America's finest colleges. It's in Pennsylvania. And he got a degree in engineering. And so Patrick then went to work for a startup company called Microsoft in 1989 when it wasn't a startup, you know, when it was kind of a smaller company. And he did that for eight years and he did well. And he thought, well, I could kind of keep staying on the West Coast and do the tech thing. Or I could go and do something and give something back to my country of Ghana and maybe do something and try to change the trajectory of Africa. So he went to business school at the Haas Business School. I think it's at UCLA. And he said, I'm going to go and start a university just like Swarthmore. And he went to his friends at Microsoft who had made some money and he had he had made a little bit of money. And he said, I'm going to start a school. And so he started it on a shoestring. And the country of Ghana was sort of open to the idea of a private university in Ghana. And they were sort of kind of um, not sure because there was a whole existing system of free public universities in Ghana, and they saw this as a threat. And so this is my version of it. This isn't necessarily his version of it. And then I'd say, um, so, but he was persistent and he went and kept raising money and he had a vision and it was a very compelling vision. And he started having students study, rented space. And now he's been in the business now for 20 years. He's got a fabulous campus outside of Accra, Ghana. It's a Ghana first, but I'd say it's a Pan-African university. So they have students from all over Africa. And he's attracted a significant amounts of private uh, financial support for this vision. And I think it's really, really important. And my view is, given the way Africa is going, where they're going to go have, today we have a billion people in Africa, John. 25 years from now, it's important for your listeners to understand that there'll be more African citizens than citizens of India and mainland China in 25 years. So I want your listeners to think about that, like how important Africa is going to be much more preponderant and important in your children and your grandchildren's future than it is now. And so you need to think about Africa the way we used to think about India as kind of kind of emerging in the early 90s 
or China in the early 80s, Africa as a continent is going to be a really big deal. And so there's a concept of in demography of something called the demographic dividend. And so East Asia had one in the 60s. If you invest in people as they as the population grows, you get a whole bunch of extra kicker benefits from that. So we're either going to make sure we invest in all the young people in Africa and make sure they have jobs, or we're going to have a problem. Like it's, that's either an amazing thing for the world, or it's going to be an enormous, dangerous thing for the world. Young people have can do four things with their energy. They can they can start a company, they can work, go work at a job, they can go to school, they can do something unproductive with their energies, and I'm not going to list them all here, but you can imagine like things that are unproductive and dangerous with their energies, or they can migrate. Those are the four options for young people with their energy. Migrate, do something unproductive, go to school, or get a job. Yeah, That's it. So much of your book, you described the many international organizations that exist and are and are tied to development. You you did a great job earlier of covering uh, many of the uh, multilateral organizations. Uh, you also worked at the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, uh, which is the U.S. Uh, uh, global aid organization, U.S. government. How important is it to fully fund USAID and perhaps even increase funding for USAID if we want to improve the U.S. standing around the world? Uh, and, and would beefing up USAID's budget pay dividends for American national security interests? You know, I think so. I think you're asking a really interesting question, John. I think what I would say to you is there are some things that AID does that it probably would be worthwhile for us to do a top-to-bottom review, given the new world that we're in, of what we're spending money on, how we're organized, who we hire, what are the systems that we have, And so I'd say potentially there are some marginal increases I would make in things like telecom and tech, something on energy, something on accelerating nearshoring away from China, and something on mining and minerals. We ought to have a whole series of initiatives around those four things. Then I would say maybe there's some things we're spending, we've been spending a lot of money on for a long time, where, you know, some of the local governments have, there have been increasing amounts of taxes collected, even some of the world's poorest countries, where they ought to be able to pick up the tab on some of the things we've been funding with our foreign assistance. And we ought to be engaging in real conversations. We've been spending 20 for 20 years, we've been extremely generous in paying for the HIV AIDS medicine for everybody in South Africa. That's now, South Africa just had a whole bunch of military exercises in Russia with Russia and China. They did naval exercises. John, you're in the Navy. Yep. Well, some some, you know, provocative person said to me recently at dinner, well, who cares if the South Africans are doing military exercises with Russia and China? I bet most of your listeners would think that's a pretty obnoxious uh, a pretty provocative thing because it means like they're they're trying to align with the Russians and the Chinese. So we bankroll and pay for their AIDS medicine while they go off and partner with the Russians and the Chinese. And there are allegations that the South Africans just sent some weapons to the Russians to support their war effort. So are we chumps? Like, I don't get it. So it strikes me if they can afford to give weapons to the Russians, why are we not having a more honest conversation after 20 years of bankrolling all their HIV AIDS in South Africa and say, look, look, fellas, you have a moral responsibility to pay to make sure that your, your citizenry don't die from HIV AIDS. And so we need to have a glide path where you start picking up the tab for this stuff. No one wants to talk about it because it's seen as like that's hard hearted, that's mean. But I just think 
And the, certainly South Africa would strike me as exhibit A of like, let's have a conversation about that. Like, why are we spending $4 million a year? I, I know why we're doing it. And I know we're in a jam. And the South Africa is like, well, if you, if you, we're not going to pay. And so we, we basically look like chumps because we're not, no one wants to like cut off the medicine of sick people, but give me a break. They are finished. They're giving weapons to the Russians. They're doing military exercises. And like, we can't have a discussion with them about this. And it says a lot, but I think over time, many societies have seen even, even more authoritarian regimes or thuggish regimes in other parts of the world have said, you know, it's in my interest to sustain my rule to invest more in basic education. What I'd like is for the United States to engage these thuggish regimes. I'm not going to name them to say some more thuggish and less thuggish regimes say, you know, it's in your interest to pick up the tab on your own health care would be probably an appropriate appropriate conversation. I think we should spend lots of money on global health. I'm not saying that, but it just strikes me as that that would seem to me it would be at least worth a conversation. So it seems to me that there's a number of places we might at least have a real conversation. And some people don't want to do it for a bunch of reasons and because we, we create these dilemmas. And I'm not saying we should cut off anybody's medicine. So I don't want anyone leaving this call saying like Dan is saying cut off people's medicine. I didn't say that. So I think, but I do think we ought to be at least having real conversations, have a top to bottom review and think about like, what are we going to do and what kind of a glide path are we going to be on in certain things? And then for countries that are middle income countries, like, do we need to be like, if you've got a space exploration program, you've got a nascent foreign aid program, like a real, you know, we, we spend something north of $100 million a year in India on foreign aid. Like, I'm not sure what, why we're doing that. We ought to do something different there. We continue to have a program in Brazil. I'm not sure what we're doing in Brazil. Now, if you said to me, well, some people say, well, that's how we're going to influence them to get them to vote the right way with us on the United Nations. I don't believe that. But, you know, people can tell themselves that, but it, it's not true. There's other reasons why we do it. And I'm not sure that's, I think it would be worth reviewing some of that. So upper middle income countries, like what are we doing there and why are we doing it? I think is worth part of the conversation as well. Yeah, you break up, you you bring up a really good point about uh, USAID and and uh, the aid programs that are out there. I would actually suggest to you that we 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 probably benefit from a much bigger strategic review, uh, taking a look at uh, the unified command plan that DOD uses, uh, the uh, Bureau of uh, Political Affairs in state, making sure that those things are actually aligned properly. Because right now there's various overlapping things for American. Uh, diplomatic uh, engagement and military engagement that don't align properly and to th start thinking more comprehensively about all of the regional areas of the world and maybe shaping certain areas of the world that are more directly connected economically, culturally, etc. Uh, Dan, we're, we're down. We're actually running a little over time. Uh, I, I always want to give my guests just a, uh, the last say on the show. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on this topic of soft power and how America could could reinvigorate our our leadership, global leadership, through the use of soft power. So I just I'm optimistic that the United States will get its act together on this. That I believe that your listeners, if they think about it, are going to say, "I don't want China running the world." But if we don't want China around the world, we can't fight something with nothing. So we got to come up with a something. So I wrote this book, The American Imperative: Reclaiming Global Leadership, to propose a something. For your listeners to think about and so i look forward to continuing the conversation john i really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today thanks so much you bet we'll have to wrap it up here mr daniel rundy from the center for strategic international studies author of the american imperative thank you for joining us today are there any other resources you might highlight for our listeners uh what what is uh, csis's website csis.org 
Okay, and American Imperative, people can pick that up yeah, on uh, yeah, Amazon. Yeah, also yeah. If you Google, if you Google, Dan, I think it's danrundy.com is where my my personal website too. All right, great. Uh, thank Thanks, you so much, John. Dan. Uh, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.